As, as simple as we try to make our worship, uh, we have liturgy. We do. And uh, there are things in which uh, there's a lot of things to remember, especially the, the sitting, up and, uh, sitting down and standing up is uh, hard to remember. Now, this morning, I want to begin uh, with the time of greeting once again, but I want to ask for you guys to think about something right now. Think of one of your favorite childhood books. So I'll give you a moment to think about that. For some of you guys, it's easy, but I could tell from the eye movements of some of the people, you're going, childhood books. Um, We all read stories as children. So think of some of your favorite childhood books. And as you greet one another, would you share them with each other? Okay, so go ahead. Let's all stand up and greet one another to church one more time. All right, let's get back. Let's start getting back. I realize as I'm thinking about this, you know, the one, one person that would have really loved to have shared her childhood books is Pastor Son. And just to update you guys, actually, I did get, her, get a phone call from her this morning because she was planning on coming to church. And just, I do want to update you guys because I do want for all of us to be praying for her health. And I think uh, some of us are in um, different levels of awareness in terms of her situation. She had a very serious infection. She still does have a very serious infection. I was joking around with her that, uh, this week that her antibiotics, the sort of antibiotics that she's getting are so strong and so high that I said, you could handle anthrax and, and not, not die from anthrax, but you might die from your, your um, infection. That's how strong it is right now. And... Um, but her, her uh, surgery wound, I know, it's not really funny at all. It's like, so <laughs> it made her laugh, uh, uh, maybe. Um, her, her wounds are not healing right, her surgery wounds, and in fact started bleeding again last night. And it's been almost, if it's tomorrow, uh, it will be two weeks uh, from her original surgery. So it should be settling in. So, um, so they had her come in for urgent care. So... I do want for all of us to be praying for her, okay? And I know she would have really have loved this question because she is a bookworm. Some of you guys were bookworms as well, and some of you guys were like, oh, this is my favorite question of all time. Others of you guys are like, uh, do comic books count? <laughs> you know, and uh, Gene's like, childhood book, it's just all a blur, you know? It's just all a blur, dude. As he's wearing this 80s the specials jacket with him. I thought that might help uh, trigger his memory, but some of you guys struggled with it. Um, uh, just any interesting books that you guys heard for, um, amongst your mist? Captain Underpants, really? <laughs> My kids were reading that. <laughs> That's, that makes me feel really old. Okay, so. Others? Giving Tree. Okay. Okay. Encyclopedia Brown stories. Okay. I thought of those too. Anybody remember Homer and the Donuts? Homer? Right? Okay, that's... Um, I just thought about that as I was thinking about this. One of my favorite stories is um, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe um, by C.S. Lewis. And this Monday, when the kids were home for Veterans Day, um, we watched the movie together. They're not... Uh, at least Max is not old enough to read the book. And the and, uh, movie is just... Barely at his age level, but um, I thought, hey, why not? This is, and I told him, 
beforehand, I told them, uh, this is a very special movie to me. Uh, I'm sorry, this is a very special story to me. The book is one of my favorite books as a child, one of my favorite stories as a kid. And one of the characters in the book, just to let you guys know, one of the characters in the book is an inspiration for um, my daughter's name. And Lucy's eyes lit up when I told her this. And some of you guys are wondering, which character? <laughs> Aslan, yeah. No. <laughs> Lucy's eyes lit up when I told her this. And when I saw her eyes lit up and she realized it's a special book, and, and um, I actually felt a little bit nervous. Because for me, this is such a precious book, such a precious story, uh, so meaningful to me as I think about the childhood, uh, uh, as I think about the first time I read this book. I, on several levels, I, I wanted for, for it to be special for them, right? I wanted for the book to be special for her and for Max. Uh, but what if it wasn't? What if they didn't think it was as special as I did, right? So there was a little bit of anxiety as I show them this m- movie. But I, re- I was thinking the best stories, the best stories don't just entertain or uh, inform us. or They shape us. They shape us. They become part of us and they shape us. They help us understand our lives. They help us to understand uh, some new possibilities of what is possible in life. Where they fill us with unexpected hope. Uh, and they help us figure out uh, what things are important in life to love, right? Anybody grow up reading Roald Dahl? Anybody mention Roald Dahl? Okay. He wrote Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, and James and the Giant Peach, and I heard an interview this week with his youngest daughter, who also happened to be a bit named Lucy as well, and she said that these stories started out as bedtime stories that her father um, would tell her and her four siblings. And they were really about the sort of people that he wished for them to be, full of imagination, full of resilience, um, full of willingness, despite, um, despite all of the authoritative figures around them, to, to maintain their creative edge, to, to be people uh, who don't just conform, but people who really allow for that spark to grow in them, the childhood spark to, to grow and um, one time he really wished for his children and for the children of the world to love books. And so he wrote Matilda. And they did. And Lucy Dahl became a writer. The most powerful stories shape us and help us to fall in love with the right things and fill us with a great sense of purpose about what this life what your life can be about, right? Nehemiah gets to the end of his wall-building project, right? And we find, we find that in chapter 6, verses 15. But he is only half done, or if actually not even half done in one sense, of his entire rebuilding project. Because now comes the hard part. Now he has to rebuild the people, for several generations now, they've been living as vanquished people under the authority of a hostile empire with their beloved Jerusalem lying in ruins. Their spirits are broken. So to now rebuild their identity as the chosen covenant people of God, how does one go about doing that? And the answer is by telling a story. 
Nehemiah does this by telling a story. But it's not just any story. It's not even just a good story, but it, it is the best story that's ever been told. It is the story of God's unremitting love for his creation. That's what we have when we say the word of God was opened up to them. And as the people begin to understand themselves in the light of God's story of salvation, they're filled with new hope and a new sense of purpose, new sense of what is possible, and it shapes them and it lets them know what is worthy of their love and their life, that they're not the losers, that they must have been thinking that, that they were of history, that they're not forgotten, they're remembered, and they're loved. That's what they learn. This is what is happening in Nehemiah chapter 8. The rebuilding of God's spirits. Because despite all the opposition, Nehemiah leads the people of God to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem in just 52 days. But that's not the hard part. He knows the job is only just beginning. So then starting with chapter 7, he gathers all the men and anyone who can understand, it says. Anyone who can understand. He gathers them all into the city square, the newly built town square. And as they sit wondering what this dedication service might look like, Ezra, the priest, comes walking up to the podium. And they can see that he is carrying with him the Torah. Because in the olden days, of course, they didn't even have like the thin line Bibles, right? They didn't have smartphones in which they're just walking up. They had scrolls. They had gigantic scrolls. And he walks up to the podium and they can see that he's carrying the Torah, the, the, the book of the law of God, the Bible with him. And he begins to read. He begins to read from daybreak till noon, it says. He reads the scripture. Now, um, he does this for seven days. That might sound, for us, it might sound a little bit grueling. It's like, oh, wow, what an endurance event. But it wasn't for them. They're completely overwhelmed and completely captivated by the story. From daybreak to noon, for seven days, he does this. But no one shows up late. No one calls in sick. No one says, I got to do something else. Everybody is just coming in and they're waiting early. No one would miss this telling of the story of God and his love for his creation. And no matter what we do, no matter how we utterly mess up as his people, God remains true. God remains steadfast. God remains faithful to his promises to his people and will remain so until the end of time itself. That's what the story that they're hearing. They, uh, nobody told them to stand up, right? Nobody had to direct them to sit, to sit down and stand up. You, you see this. As soon as he starts reading, everybody gets up. Everybody gets up. I think in one part it might have been because of respect. But the other part was because it's a show of their anticipation of the word being given. They just want to, you know, they're, they're just poking their heads out in a, in a, like in a parade when you're trying to see Something really, really important. And all of these people are anticipating and loving every word that comes out of Ezra's mouth as he reads from the scriptures. 
Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. He goes through it. That's a really cool, amazing scene. But you know what's even more amazing is their response. They don't just stand in in rapt attention. They begin to weep. They begin to cry. They cry. They weep because they know, they're recognizing, this is our story. This is my story. It's a story of this heartbreaking, steadfast love. But they recognize this story is about us. And they weep. This God that some thought had abandoned them because of their infidelity, they realize this God who saved them time and time again is now there saving them once again. I don't know when the last time you guys had that realization that God saves, not just once in one sense, that God saves us all the time. That every time you read the Bible, that you realize as God keeps his promises to us, you realize God is saving us once again. God is not just a God who saves us once again and then just leaves us to our devices. But there's a sense in which, yes, the once and done impact of Christ's cross, yes, that is something that has happened once and is forever done and complete. But there's another sense in which we are people who are recipients of a saving, continually saving grace. And we see this every time the truth and the promises of the Bible are made true and clear to us in our hearts. I don't know when the last time you had that realization, but these tears should be familiar to all of us. Not as a distant memory, but something that, 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 that captures us in our interaction with God. And that tears of finding your story making sense in the context of God's story. I make fun of myself a little bit and say I'm not the most emotional guy, but I am, when, especially when it comes to the word. It does. Several months ago, I remember, I remember, this is a little bit of a funny story, so I, I, I particularly remember this time. But I find myself being really anxious at this time. Um, I think it was just, you know, there's, every once in a while, just like all of us, I too get a little bit anxious and overwhelmed with life, right? Uh, I, I think it was not just one thing, because oftentimes when, it's, when you get overwhelmed, it's like you get concerned about your life, you, where, you're, where that's pointing to, but your, your family, your, your, the people that you love, how, how, what's happening with them. And for me... Also, our church, right? And just, I just felt a lot of anxiety building up. And I remember I, I was in my car just praying over and over the this, this scriptural promise that he who began the good work in you will carry it on to his, its completion. That he who began the good work in you will carry it out unto completion. And you guys know when... Uh, when you finally get the truth of something in your heart, you, you can say the truth of something once or twice, but there's a point at which you go, oh, and you just get it in your heart. And what happens at that moment? It, it just becomes overwhelming, right? There's all of this emotion that floods, right? And suddenly I found myself just weeping, just weeping. And I just pulled over, and um, I found myself just weeping. And it was a day, and it was... 
it was raining a little bit, but for whatever reason, I, I started to like move the windshield wiper faster because I thought for some reason that might get clear up my tears, but these windshield wipers could not clear away my tears. And I just sat there just weeping and just letting that soak in, letting that word soak in in my life. And I think you guys are familiar with those tears. You guys are familiar with that moment in which you realize God's word you realize God's word is the story that can take your story and make sense out of it, right? This is what's happening here. The word of God flowing into people's hearts. Ezra reads the scriptures, and the people cry. And it's uh, contagious, as most tears are, right? People start crying on one side of the city square, and and the other side, and people start just crying all over the place. It becomes so much that Nehemiah actually has to make a declaration. He says, no more crying. Stop crying, people. This is a time to celebrate. This is a joyous occasion. And he tells everybody, stop crying. So I imagine what happens because when people are crying, and you tell them it's a joyous occasion, people don't stop crying. They're probably doing this, you know, crying and laughing thing you know this thing that women do all the time but that men are really uncomfortable with until they have a child and then you do this crying and it's like why are you crying because i'm so happy you know it makes no sense to most of us guys until you have kids why are you crying because i'm so happy and I get, I'm guessing that that's exactly what was happening to the entire nation. The city full of people, they're just crying, and they're, but they're also so happy. And they were asking each other, why are we crying? Because we're so happy. We're so happy. That's what's going on here. That's what's happening in chapter 8. Now, there are a lot of lessons for us to learn from this. But I want for us to have this image in our heads because I think, this reveals to us in some critical ways how we are to be thinking about our relationship to the Word of God, to the story of God. Because I think sometimes we get it wrong. And I think we fail to do the Word of God justice because we have not related to it in a proper way. Here's the thing. Here's the first thing I want for us to notice. That when we approach God's Word... When we listen to God's story, we cannot be satisfied with just knowledge. It has to be to encounter the love in it. That's the first thing I want to share with you guys. That we have to love God's word. And that has to be our goal, not knowledge. Not just knowing in our heads. Knowledge, intellectual awareness is not enough. Our primary relational paradigm with God's word cannot be as student. Okay? Studying some text as if we're studying for some finals at college or high school, whatever. But as a beloved recipient of a love letter. That should be our paradigm. I've studied a lot of textbooks in my time, but not once did I ever feel moved. Not once did I ever think, love, you know? I mean, yes, I'm guessing that there are some of you guys that are in here who may have felt a lot of love. I was talking to Miyang 
last, week, last Sunday about how she, was, she took organic chemistry. She said, I loved it. Or she said, I really liked it. So I don't know, maybe some of you guys have this reaction to reading textbooks and you say, love. But you do know also that that's not normal. That's just not, right? <clears throat> the normal paradigm is as a student, knowledge, information. The normal paradigm for the Bible, study of the Bible, is not as a student, but as a recipient of a love letter. I learned this week, um, in, a, in, the, um, in an ancient Jewish tradition, when children were ready to read at ages 3, 4, 5, however old the child was, as they began to read, um, they would be brought before the rabbi, the temple leader. And the rabbi would bring before the child a, a piece of slate a, uh, with uh, scripture written on it. So a, a piece of rock with scripture engraved on it or written on it. And the rabbi would drip little pieces, little drops of honey on it. And the children would be taught to lick Lick the honey off of the slate, off of the words that are written. To remind them to love the word of God as sweetness itself. Sweeter than honey that we're told in Psalm 119. That's how they learned. That was their first interaction with the word of God written on stone. Not just to learn it. Not just to to break it down and, and figure out how to read it and write it. The first interaction with the word of God was to be sweetness, licking honey. Because they wanted for children to understand that the words are not meant to be mere knowledge or information, but to be loved. The point of love letters is not to walk away. One doesn't walk away from a love letter saying, that was really interesting. Right? The point of love letters, especially between people who love each other, is that it both reflects and then also causes the relationship to draw closer. You can't divorce the words that you see on the paper from the relationship to the word giver, right? The words become precious and even treasured because you treasure and find precious the one who gave you the words, right? You find yourself longing for the words. You find yourself longing for more of these words. Nobody ever says, wow, that was a long love letter. Why was it so long? Why did you have to make it so long? Nobody ever says that, right? Because more than anything else, the words from a loved one are sweetness itself. When someone who loves you, whether it's a family member or a friend or a lover, writes something to you, the way in which you read those words are very, very different. Um, My daughter's teacher, my daughter's second grade teacher, does this wonderful thing where the kids write letters uh, in a notebook on a regular basis to the parents. It's really, really cool. And then the parents are invited to write back to the kids. I guarantee you there's not a single parent that says, why do you have to do this? I could just ask them what what they did at school. All parents long for that letter 
Esther and I, we look through her work, but we're like, the first thing we do is go to that page and say, oh, did she write it to me or to you? <laughs> or to both of us? And usually I lose out. <laughs> but once in a while, my name is in there, Poppy, you know. And it's exciting. The Word of God is not something we're supposed to study alone and then walk away saying, I found something interesting here. But the point of these words, these words here are to draw us closer to our beloved Lord, to grow in our love for Him. Now, I think you guys know me, and I think I have enough credibility with you guys to know. I love the, the mind, the life of the mind, right? You guys know um, I love reading the Bible. I love God's Word. I love exegeting it. I love, I love reading it in Greek. I, I still can. Um, I love studying it. I love parsing it. I love doing all of that stuff, but I'm telling you, that's just the first step. And if you stop there, if you think that's the point of it, you miss the point. You've gotten nowhere in one sense. I'm going to talk about that in a little bit more, but I hope you guys understand. I'm not saying don't study the Word, but I'm saying that is just the first step. On the way, actually, that is just a process on the way to the first step, which is to love the Word. Okay? Now, here's what I think this means for us. For people who are not yet Christian, if you are someone you know has ever said something like, I've read the Bible, and I find it interesting, but I don't buy the argument. Does that sound familiar to anybody? I have to say it's because they're not getting the central message because they haven't understood it as a love letter. It's a little bit like saying, someone looking through my daughter's letters and saying, I'm not sure what the big deal is. I'm not getting it. There's a lot of misspelling. I mean, who spells students like that, you know? Who spells teacher like that? And what is this word poppy, you know? And there's rather poor penmanship. What is that to love? You missed the point. That's what I'm saying. Knowledge is important, but it's not the complete picture, never meant to be. It's a little bit like if we were look, reading the Bible that way, you're not going to get it. You're not going to get it. Because it's a little bit like somebody who, uh, uh, who might be suffering from a certain type of autism where you miss the emotional content of a conversation. Right? And, but at least those people know that they're missing the emotional content of a conversation. But if you read the Bible purely only as knowledge and you think somehow it's going to make an argument that makes sense to you and you think about it as mainly as a, as a logic tool of logic. Now there's wonderful arguments in here. There's wonderful logic in here. But if you read it that way, I'm telling you, you're still going to miss out on this huge thing called love that's conveyed through these words. That's why the people weep. That's why people weep. For those of us in the church, I think it also means, very simply, that we need to take a look at our appreciation of this story, of this critical story. Do you treat it like a gift from a loved one? Do we still weep 
sometimes with contrite hearts, sometimes with joyful tears, because we love this story. And we love the one who tells us this story. Do we still weep in our hearts because of it? Do we treasure it? Do we treasure these words like we do the latest episode of whatever show or a movie or a sporting event? Do we anticipate and treasure it as much as we do those things? Do we find this story sweet? Do we think about that? Treasure it so much that you find yourself anxious for others to love it as much as you do. Right? There's a reason why parents, uh, (coughs) grandparents, let's pick on grandparents, love to show pictures of their grandkids to any person that is willing to sit down with them. I mean, I could be sitting at like a doctor's office looking at a magazine, like a car magazine, you know, and I could be there for like some, I don't know, I mean, some random things, like, like some male issue. <laughs> whatever, whatever it is, it could be like the, the most awkward situation, but then there will be a, some grandpa or grandma who will sit next to me and say, let me show you pictures of my kids. Because what you love, you want to share. And I will have to sit there and I will have to look through those pictures. And if I give them a wrong response with my face or something, or that I'm not interested, or I don't think that they're the cutest things in the world, because I think my kids are the cutest things in the world, then they'll catch on that. And they'll be offended from a stranger. All right? The things that we consider sweet and we treasure, we want to share. That's what we do. This is a total aside and a total observation, but... Um, I was thinking, and, and this, is, so this is a little bit of a bonus point, so I'm going to just put the pulpit over here for now and preach from here for a second. But I was thinking, and this is an observation, but I was thinking about how um, the, Jewish, uh, the, the devout Jewish families would teach their kids to love uh, Scripture, right, by dripping honey. And I was thinking about that, the wisdom in that, because... You know that it's a very proven fact, right? You don't, nobody has to argue with you. That the way in which we love, as well as the way in which we remember things, the more of our senses are involved, the better we remember, right? So they're associating taste with this event. And they're associating touch with this, this tablet. A rock tablet, not like an iPad, you know? And they're associating, obviously, sight and, and they're told to read these words out loud. Right? So, and, and they smell the honey. So all five of the major senses are involved. And nowadays, with so many of us reading scripture electronically, right? I do this as well. Most of my scripture reading, I have to admit, is uh, on my computer. I wonder about that because we read alone and just looking at it and, uh, and we just read the words. There's no touch. We don't open up the Bible. You know, you tap on the surface of the tablet. There's no smell. There's no taste. You don't even say it out loud, right? So I wonder, I mean, think about the wisdom in that. And I think maybe there might be a way, there might be wisdom in 
bringing back our love for the word by making it more tactile and making it more associated. I don't know, uh, you know, you would mess up, you would go through a lot of Bibles if you dripped honey on it and started licking it. And you might look a little bit crazy at Starbucks too doing that. But associating more of these things into our practice, maybe that might help us remember as well as to practice a love for the word, right? So I just threw that out there. I don't see that as a, as a set thing where I'm saying you must do that, otherwise you're in the wrong. God's word is God's word. I believe that for sure. But I think there's a lot of wisdom in including the other things. Now here's the second thing. First is to love God's word. Second thing is to live God's word. This is a super simple outline, isn't it? You can remember it next week even. Love God's word, then live God's word. Here's what naturally happens when you love God's word. You'll want to live God's word. The people in Nehemiah chapter 8, this is what we see. Um, one thing that happens immediately is that they, they start wanting to live it. And so they're reading through the books of the Bible, the first five books especially, and they are in the seventh month of, uh, of the calendar. And they realize, oh, we're reading this thing called the Feast of Tabernacles. And that gets celebrated on the seventh month. And that is a time in which people will actually live out, put, uh, uh, to think back to the time of their exodus, in which they were journeying through the desert, the wilderness, and they lived in tents tabernacles that's what that's a fancy word for tents and they tent themselves for seven days doing this and they immediately when they read this they immediately go out you read that entire thing about finding tabernacles wood and building up little tents that's what they're doing because they immediately see this and say i want to do that i want to do what the bible is telling them for us to do that sounds really really cool i want to recapture that i want to be part of that story that's what they do so Nehemiah and the people immediately get their tents together, and they start having the biggest camp out, it says. People have not had a camp out like this in a long, long time. But it wasn't just at that level of doing something that they see people do in the Bible and then copying it. Chapter 9 is all about, what does the chapter heading for chapter 9 say for you guys? If you, if you have your Bibles open. Chapter 9, chapter heading for that. What does it say? Go ahead. The Israelites confess their sins. No one said, confess your sins, everybody. They start confessing their sins because they read the Bible and it convicts them in their heart. And not only are they joyous, they understand that this means a changed life is in order. So they begin to confess their sins. They begin a national movement of confession and contrition. And as a community, they begin to repent. And it's very much like what happens in the early church as well when you read in Acts 2 about when the early church got together and they started studying God's word and they started studying uh, Jesus' teachings. They began to meet, study God's word, and immediately they started looking for ways to be generous, to care for the poor and the marginalized, and looking for where, ways to share God's story. So immediately they make this connection between reading the love of God's word and the desire to live God's word. 
the distance between hearing God's word and living out God's word, there is none. As soon as they hear, they want to live it. As soon as they hear, they want to live this word and obey it. If you love the word of God, you will want to live the word of God. So, again, here's what this means for us. Sometimes you'll hear somebody say, I just want a Bible study. I wish something was more word-oriented. And what that usually means when somebody says something like that is there's a tendency, somebody saying, I want to just focus on the, the, the mind aspect, the knowledge aspect, the intellectual pursuit. And what is also implied is that scriptures are kind of hard to understand. So they need help. The main job of the pastors is to help people understand the word. I just don't think that's our main job. I think our main job is to help people live the word. Not understand it. Our job is not as teachers, but as pastors to guide you. The image is not as somebody with a chalkboard. The image is as a shepherd guiding people along as they live out their life, right? It sounds um, very mature, and sometimes people will say it because it sounds very um, spiritual. But to say, I want knowledge, I want to understand the Bible more, and, and replacing that as, or putting that as the main way in which we interact with the Bible, and in which the pastors ought to interact with us, I think that's a red herring because it puts the focus away from the right thing, which is to live out God's word. This is what the Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard said about this. The Bible is really easy to understand. That's what Soren Kierkegaard said. But we Christians are a bunch of scheming swindlers. We pretend to be unable to understand it because we know very well that the minute we understand we are obliged to act accordingly. And I think he's right. I think he's right. The NIV translation, you know what the vocabulary level that they translate, they write this at? Eighth grade. Eighth grade. And you guys know from school, somebody could be doing, eighth grade level reading is like, I'm guessing Harry Potter is probably written, they would say it's written at like something like a 12th grade level. But 5th graders read it. I'm just saying that's very setting the standard very loosely as an 8th grade level. You're, not, you're just not going to find hard words in here. Okay, that's what I'm trying to tell you. It's made easy for us. Yeah, there are certain sections. If you opened up Nehemiah and you went straight to chapter 7 and you read all of these names, I I mean, I just could not do it to Jason to make him read Nehemiah chapter 7. I made him skip that because it's just a list of names after names and you're just going, I don't get this. Yeah, you're right. There are certain sections that requires probably somebody to help you to say, well, that's this. But the rest of it, I would say 90% requires no help 
especially when you get into Jesus' teachings, it requires no help. And if you were to say to me, you know, I'm just struggling with, I, I, I only know, you know, I'm just going to focus on Jesus' teachings, fantastic. That's something we, struggle, we can struggle with for the rest of our lives. If that's all you want to do, because that's the only part that you can understand, the rest of it, Romans is a little bit harder, or, you know, Leviticus is too hard, that's fine. But there's plenty for us to try to live out with our lives. There's a big difference between knowing about someone versus actually knowing someone, right? But the great danger is that many of us, for many of us, is that we can actually think if you know enough about the word, that is the same thing as knowing the word. The bigger question always in the Bible is, is the story of the Bible shaping your story, your life? Are you learning to bless others with the blessing of God in your life? Are you living out God's grace in your interaction with others? And to answer those questions, you need a community. You need somebody else that can help you with that, with, to answer those questions. You need people in your life that can actually help you answer those questions. Because if you were to ever ask yourself, I, I make this point all the time, right? Everybody in the world thinks they're a generous person, right? The stingiest among you guys who never pick up a, the check ever at dinner will think, but I'm a generous person. Right? Because you, you're generous in other ways. And I'm not saying, oh, you just need for, you, need, you guys need to come to me so that I can point out what's wrong with you. No, I'm saying we need to be honest with ourselves about our, our own ability to self-deceive. I know I think of myself as a generous person, but there's a good chance there are people amongst, uh, amongst here, right here, right now. Some of you guys are thinking, chuckle, 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 right inside, LOL. This is, you think you're generous, right? It's the same thing as everybody thinking that they're a funny person, right? You guys want me to stop. You guys are like, okay, that one you really need to stop about, okay. So I was reading this article about the small church in Oakland that was pastored by one of my friends. The article was uh, penned by one of my friends. And uh, uh, in their heyday, this church at one point had several hundreds of people in their midst as members. But, but by the time my friend started out there as a pastor, uh, straight out of seminary. They had 15 members. They had 15 members. 15 members, meaning not all of the members would show up to church every Sunday. So 15 members, 15 people at church maximum. Now, eventually, the story goes throughout the article, by the time my, uh, my friend left, several years later, uh, revival and recommitment, all that happened. Um, they were at 80 members. Now, you guys thought I, thought I was going to say something like 8,000 members. But this is not a story about a mega church. So I do want put to the, put, the, put that in context. But there is a story of people falling in love with the Word of God. So what they began to do, and this article is about the way in which they began to just study through the Bible together 
and began to ask this question. What we read in the Bible, the story that we find in the Bible, what would it look like if we were to live that story out in our lives, in our church? And they just really began to ask this question amongst each other and challenge one another. And they began to do these really crazy things like, you know, they would study the Good Samaritan story and instead of thinking about how that's a wonderful story and walking away and thinking that's it, they challenge you to try to learn and somebody would say something like, you know, oh, that means we're supposed to love our neighbors even if they're different, a different, a different ethnic and religious background. Somebody would say something crazy like that and then next day, a couple of other people would go, well... Here's some people from different, different ethnic and religious backgrounds. How can we love them? So they were in a poor part of Oakland, and they brought food to them. Simple ways in which they began to just say, this story, what would it mean for us to live this story out in our lives? And they read Exodus together. And they were from the part where they said they were meant to be a people on a journey and venture forth and trust God in faith. And they began some mission projects, and people started attending these mission projects even though they were completely out of their comfort zone. Even though this was something that they said, I don't know if I'm good at this. I don't, know if, I don't know if I'm comfortable with this. I don't know if I can do this. But I'm going to try to trust this story in the Bible as being valid in my life because I want to see what would happen if I, um, if I lived out my life in the context of God's story, if I let God's story shape me. And they began these strange projects once in a while. I mean, a bunch of um, senior citizens, they opened up a homework center. You know, I'm going, wow, does that sound like a good idea? I, mean, I struggle with the, trying to remember the math that I have to teach, that I have to help you know, my second grade daughter with. Senior citizens, I mean, they used to do math really differently back then, didn't they? But they did, and somehow they made relationships. And they started, um, they started community development projects. Fifteen members. They have very little money. And they began to uh, build things, do building projects on an incredibly small scale. Like gardens. And that's what this story is about. And I was really inspired by reading this. One of the things that I would want for us to do, um, I would love for us to do Bible studies like that, where we make that distance between hearing God's word and, and, and living God's word um, so short that we don't focus on this is, we have to spend the first 40 minutes of the study trying to figure out what this is saying because I'm sure nobody else knows. So let me do all the talking. Instead of that, just hearing God's word and for us to start asking questions of one another. What would it look like for us to live this story out as a church? And for you guys to all participate in thinking about what that might look like. Because it might be as simple as just someone saying, here's the obvious. Can we try this? Here's the obvious. What does it mean for us, the church, to make these stories our stories? I was thinking about that, and I, I really want for us to aspire 
to living out God's word like that. Nehemiah 8 is an incredible inspirational story and it's a story of God encountering his people through these ancient texts. It's a story of an entire people being revived to serve the purposes of God because they once again realize the truth of his faithfulness. This is our story. This is our story. But Nehemiah 8 isn't the ultimate fulfillment of God's promise. It is a signpost that points ahead to the person and the work of Jesus Christ. The word of God who became flesh and dwelled, literally the word is he tented, tabernacled amongst us. So every time you pick up this book, just pause and think that behind this book there's a father whose heart is so full of love that he would never want for us to wonder where this love letter is coming from. Let's pray. I ask that you would be with us, Lord, in a special way to convict us, but also to uh, help us to weep and rejoice. Let us cry and let us laugh. At the sound of these words, Lord, let us treasure these words as a story that we can live by. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.